Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Good evening. It's not Rod Stewart. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the vicars here in the St. George's team. And my name is Eve, and I'm another one of the vicars here on the team. And uh, welcome to Contemporary Carols. It's so good to see all of you. So we just heard a moment ago Kate Bush's 1985 hit, Running Up That Hill, arguably the UK's song of the summer. I don't know if any of you were responsible for some of the 86.6 million streams that this song had between June and August this year, more than any other song. And while it might have been a new song to some of us, it also had the longest gap between being a number one single, with 44 years having elapsed since Kate Bush's debut number one. We have returned to the 80s. We have indeed, Eve. We have indeed. It's not just Kate Bush, though, is it? Uh, There seem to be a lot of 80s references around at the moment. Uh, I myself am a proud owner of a record player. I've got a fine vinyl collection in my living room. And I have to say, I feel very cool when I listen to music. But if only they could invent uh, a more inconvenient method for listening to music. That would be very helpful, wouldn't it? Um, I've also seen... Some pretty, good, uh, some pretty good ugly denim. I mean, looking at students particularly, there's a lot of ugly denim around at the moment, isn't there? And Eve is wearing a fetching number this evening. I was bought this last year as a gift, <laughs> but anyway, that's fine. And um, of course, uh, I guess we should talk about hair. We should talk about hair, shouldn't sure, we? Sure, yeah. Uh, I was walking down the street the other day, I walked past a barbershop, and I saw somebody getting this exact hairstyle, and I thought to myself, I've just got to get, I've got to get the mullet for contemporary carols. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be done if we're going to go 80s. Um, but can I take it off? Please because do. it actually is really I itchy. Would it. yes. <laughs> so we're getting rid of the mullet. The mullet's gone. Uh, but as somebody that was born in the 90s, I'll say that again, I know there's a, a sharp inhale of breath when I say 90s. <laughs> somebody actually asked me if I'd hit the big 4 0 the other day. Yeah. It's disgusting, isn't it? Uh, as somebody born in the 90s, uh, I find it quite amusing that people are nostalgic for a time they can't remember, a time probably they weren't even born in. Uh, I don't remember myself vinyl or double denim the first time around. So, Eve, tell us, what was the 80s yeah. like? Yeah, well, I was expecting that. Um, well, I was, I was just about born in the 80s, thank you very much, but I was an 80s baby. Um, I do still own leg warmers. I have some legitimate 80s jumpers. Um, I still wear dungarees, as evidence well, good. up there. Yeah. And one of my favourite films is Back to the Future. Um, But as a child of the 90s, I saw the Spice Girls live, and I watched Friends the first time around. Wow. Yes, uh, before Netflix. That's really old. There's plenty to watch on Netflix. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for the encouragement. Anyway, speaking of Netflix, Netflix. Um, I don't know if you saw Stranger Things, Eve. Yes, I did. Uh, Lots of people watched Stranger Things. It was actually really scary this time, wasn't it? It was. Uh, I think I binge-watched a whole season, and then probably didn't sleep for about three days because I was so scared by it. But I think, I don't know if you've seen Stranger Things, but I, I think the primary reason it works as a show is that it, it, it re- returns us to a simpler time. It returns us to a time when children uh, didn't have smartphones, they didn't use Be Real, if you don't know what that is, ask somebody who looks young. Uh, children played board games, 
they rode bikes to arcades, they listened to Walkmen. It's premised on the fact that we are all nostalgic for the past. And I think there's good reasons for this. When things are difficult, when prices go up, when the world news brings us to a point of compassion fatigue, it's actually much easier to escape to the past. It's easier to return to a time when things were better. Eve, I've got a, a question for you. Okay, I'm ready. You've got to pretend this is the first time I'm asking you this question. Yeah. <laughs> Can you guess who said this, Eve? Okay. In all things, I yearn for the past. Modern fashions seem to keep on growing, more and more debased. I find that even amongst the most splendid pieces, those in the old forms are the most pleasing. Who said that? Um, I don't know if anyone else would wonder, is that something Piers Morgan said? It's not Piers Morgan. I can see, see where you're going with that. Who asked could um, it be? The other one, um, Jeremy Clarkson. It's not Jeremy Clarkson. Okay. Uh, we have done this about four times, and she always says the same guesses. I don't know why there's she doesn't try something others. different. There's not many others in that category uh, that I would go for. It was actually, Eve, the 14th century Japanese Buddhist monk, Yoshida Kenko. There he is. Obviously. You might say he was the OG boomer. Yeah, and that's his profile picture, just there, ready for us. Um, and it makes me wonder, um, seeing him, if escaping to nostalgia is more of a human trait rather than for a particular generation. We instinctively look back to a period of time that we feel was simpler, uh, when we felt more certain, even if we're looking back with rose-tinted glasses, before we took on responsibilities of being an adult. And that's a very millennial phrase now, but it has become a verb to adult. And there are plenty of books uh, that tell you how to do it. I think you're entirely right. There's nothing really new about nostalgia. We are all yearning for something in the past. Even in the, the Bible reading that we heard this evening from the Christmas story, we heard about somebody who was desperate to live in the past. We heard a story about King Herod, a man who was so threatened by his future that he was desperate to hold on to what power and status he had. Herod had been appointed by the ruling forces of his time, by the Romans, to try and keep the Jewish people in their place. You might say he was a kind of self-appointed king of the Jews. Now, Herod is desperate to hold on to power. He's desperate to hold on to his power, but he's heard a rumor. He's heard a rumor that there is somebody to be born that will disrupt his power. There is a new king that will overthrow his status. So his current way of life cannot continue. And now something or someone is coming, someone with a competing claim. And instead of being open to change, Herod seeks to manipulate the situation, pretending to be interested in the Magi, who we know as the wise men, when really he's trying to grasp control of an unraveling situation. If only he could make a deal, if not with God, then with these wise astronomers and swap places with this new king. And then we see the arrival of this new baby, this new king that brings Herod to his point of reckoning. He knows that he cannot hold on to his power. He knows that the power and status that he brings from his past will not be enough to secure his future. And change is inevitable for all of us. But that doesn't make it any less terrifying, does it? We know that. What will we do when the world we have grown up in 
doesn't exist anymore? Where will we go when the simplicity of our childhood is replaced by bad news and rising bills and growing responsibility? Will we retreat to the safety of the past? Or are we prepared to face up to now with all of its complexities and challenges? So I wonder if any of you have had one of those awkward situations that you have either made for yourself or found yourself in that just feels so horrible and you want to backtrack immediately. Uh, quite a few years ago now, I was in a Facebook message chat with a friend. Uh, this is back when there was this thing called Facebook. Some of us were on it, and it was like an online address book, and you could talk to your friends. So I was in a message uh, with a friend, and we had a third friend who we'd sort of fallen out with. Uh, it, was, it was bad times. And uh, this friend was quite annoying. She wasn't really pulling her weight. She was moody, if I say so myself. We all are sometimes, but um, they were. And after a little while, I expressed how I was feeling to my friend in this message. I said, look, this friend, she's really annoying me. This and this and this and this are bugging me. She's not pulling her weight. Um, you know, I don't know what to do about it. And then a few hours later, that friend popped up in the message uh, because I had forgotten that we had made that message months before as three people. And she was in it. And so she could respond to what I had said. It felt awful. It's okay now, don't worry. Um, but I wish I could have backtracked from that situation. And I imagine we all feel like that sometimes. Now, Harry Styles, whose song we heard wonderfully just now, I think expresses some of this kind of wishful thinking, this nostalgia in that song we heard. As it was, broke the record for the biggest single day streams, 8.3 million for a song by a male artist in global Spotify chart history. It was also the most streamed song globally in a single day in 2022 so far, with 21.6 million streams. It, it obviously um, hit a nerve with us. As It Was is a song of longing, an acknowledgement that things have changed, but without the confidence that it's all for the better. Maybe it taps into something that we're all feeling. Joseph, in our Bible story, goes through his own wrestle with change and his circumstances going way beyond his control. But alongside this, we see God's answer, God's promise to Joseph of Emmanuel, the name of the son that Joseph was to father. And we heard that name in the carol that we sang a few moments ago. Joseph, Jesus' dad on earth, had to learn what Emmanuel meant. Joseph was a hard-working laborer, an honest man, a carpenter, getting ready to settle down with his soon-to-be wife, Mary. He had an honest job, a fiancé that he loved. He was building a life. But in our Bible reading, we read in just two short verses how his life got turned upside down. His fiancée got pregnant, and he wasn't the father. As much as he loves her, every indication points to Mary being unfaithful and ungrateful for his love and offer of a secure life that was valuable in that time. Joseph's solution is 
to go backwards, return to life as it was before this embarrassing situation gets out of hand, before he has to explain their situation to family and friends. This is genuine archaeological evidence um, and definitely not made uh, between Josh and I and I changed Josh's name on my phone to Joseph Carpenter. Now, I think this is an understandable response from Joseph. How many of us have faced a difficult and awkward situation, even one we didn't create, and tried to get out of it as quickly as possible? We don't know if Mary um, had a conversation with Joseph, or if Joseph got any advice from his friends. To be honest, it all reads as a pretty lonely experience. But Joseph was a good guy, a man of the law. He was going to leave her quietly, not wanting her to meet the public disgrace that would surely follow, any more than he wanted to face that himself. But in the midst of his chaos, God speaks a message of present hope through a messenger, an angel of the Lord. And the angel gives an intimidating but a short and formative message. Do not be afraid. What's happening is from God. And your child will save people from their sins. The narrator tells us that all of this fulfilled a promise, a promise given by God long ago. That despite humanity's rejection of God, God never abandoned us. That God would come to his people and be with them, Emmanuel. And all of this hopeful news can be summarized in the child's name, Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Now, I think we all need saving, saving from ourselves, from thinking we can make the world a better place all on our own, saving from the naivety of nostalgia. We need a present hope, hope that we are not alone. And that's some of what we expressed as we sang that carol together, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a pretty retro Christmas carol from 1710, but it's had many covers uh, over the years even with its vintage language. The haunting melody and lyrics speak of a longing to see a savior. A rescuer come and lift the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows. An invitation for the creator of the universe to come and set things right. But back to Harry Styles. Now, as much as I know that Josh and his family love that song by Harry Styles, um, I also know that Josh would have to gracefully disagree with Harry when he says, in this world, it's just us. Because it's just not true. It might have felt like that for Harry. It might have felt like that for Joseph in our Bible story. But God was always there. And in the birth of Jesus... God made sure that things would never be as it was. We would never be alone. Whatever situations you and I face, even this afternoon, 
Whatever relationships you feel can't be redeemed, where you feel like you've messed up or you have to fix things all on your own, God has come to save you in the person of Jesus. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. So what do you reckon then? Is it coming home for Christmas? Let's hope so. It's been an interesting journey, hasn't it, following England at these last few tournaments. This was me getting ready for the 98 World Cup. And I have to say, back in the day, following England was a lot more straightforward because you knew they were going to lose, and then they did. But now we have to put up with the fact that they're kind of good. Like, they might actually win a penalty shootout. They might actually get to a final. And the problem with being a little bit good is this dangerous thing starts to grow called hope. We hope. It's a bit of a cliche, isn't it, to talk about hope at Christmas time. And I wonder if actually when we talk about hope when it comes to Christmas, what we really mean is something like this. We like to make ourselves feel warm and fuzzy at Christmas. We like to put decorations in our house. We like to drink warm apple juice or warm wine that's been heated up a little bit. Uh, we like to pile on the pastries, don't we? Give me all the mince pies. And the hope is that we can plaster over some of our problems, if only for a month, just to get us through to the end of the year. I would suggest that real hope is something that goes much deeper than this, much deeper than this. Real hope is resilient even in the darkest of times. In our reading from the Christmas story, we heard of a frightened young woman, Mary, someone who had a pregnancy she wasn't expecting. She was on the edges of society. We're told that she had become greatly troubled about her future. And then she finds reason to hope. She is told that this child that she is carrying will bring hope to the whole world. And I think if we've heard this story before, we very quickly rush to the ending. But notice that upon hearing these words from the angel, Mary's immediate circumstances do not change all that much. She is still an outcast in her society. Unlike today, in Mary's time, simply by being unmarried and pregnant, she would have been looked down upon by almost everyone. She was facing losing her fiance. She might have ended up financially cut off and cast aside by her community. But she has hope. The hope that she finds in Jesus, this new life growing inside her, doesn't provide a quick fix to all of the problems that she is facing. But it does root her life and her problems in a much deeper perspective. We find words of hope in the mouth of Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. Upon hearing the good news, she too is filled with hope. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. 
Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary is blessed in the midst of her confusion and trouble. She is in difficulty, but she hopes. Now, just as the Christmas story didn't provide a quick fix to Mary, I would suggest that it doesn't provide a quick fix to all of the problems that we are faced with today. It doesn't instantly solve a cost of living crisis or climate change or war in Europe. But as Eva's reminded us, Emmanuel means that Jesus is with us in the midst of these challenges and this chaos. And in doing so, we are given hope for a different future. We are given hope that war and poverty, injustice and illness, loss and even death will not have the final word. Does this feel a bit heavy for a carol service? I think probably we're quite afraid to talk about difficult things a lot of the time. We're quite afraid to talk about suffering and dying. There's something strange about putting together, embracing difficulty and Christmas sometimes. But we heard in this song that we just heard a really powerful example of how those two things can come together at the same time. I don't know if you've heard that song before, but when I first heard that song by George Ezra, I thought this is just another kind of upbeat uh, summary pop song that you could listen to with your sunroof open and an iced coffee in your hand uh, as you drive down the motorway. And then you stop and listen to the lyrics. Green, green grass, blue, blue sky, you better throw a party on the day that I die. Something a bit weird about that, isn't there? Singing about your own funeral, your own death, with the vibes of a pool party. That feels a little bit odd. Songs about death are supposed to be sad. Think Adele looking longingly into the distance while weeping. That's what sad songs are supposed to be like, isn't it? But George Ezra, as he was talking to a journalist about why he wrote that song, where the inspiration came from, uh, told a story about being on holiday in St. Lucia. So he and his friends were having a good time, sitting by the pool bar, drinking rum, and suddenly they heard the best party they had ever heard. They heard music coming from somewhere, and as they went to explore, they saw people dancing and eating street food and having a great time. So George Ezra went up to one of the locals and he said, what on earth is going on? What is this party all about? And one of the local women turned around to him and said, this is a funeral for three people that have died. And George Ezra said, this is not how we do things at home. This is really beautiful. I think George Ezra is right. As a country, as a culture, we're often not very good at talking about death. Around the time of the Queen's death earlier in the year, there, was a lot, there were a lot of commentators talking about how the fact that uh, we are learning how to die well, how to talk about dying well. We're learning as a culture to get over the stigma around the end of life and learning how to celebrate. As Christians, we don't just think that hope in the midst of death is about getting over cultural stigma. 
even if this may be important. There is a much deeper source to our hope in the face of death. In his talk at the Queen's funeral, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, said these words, Christian hope means certain expectation of something not yet seen. Christ rose from the dead and offers life to all, abundant life now and life with God in eternity. In other words, even in the face of death, there is hope. For me, this is the epitome of what the Christmas story is all about. In the midst of our grime and our mess and our dirt and our darkness, there is hope. So I wish I could stand up to you, stand up this afternoon, and say that there is a quick fix to all of the world's problems. I wish I could tell you that if you are a Christian, if you decide to follow Jesus, that you will always have enough money and friends and nothing will ever be difficult or painful. But I've not come here to sell you something. I've not come here to tell you something that I can't deliver. The promise of God, the promise of being a Christian, is not just a self-help guide, something that promises the earth and doesn't deliver. It's something much deeper and much greater than this. It offers us hope that is deeper than circumstance. It offers life even in the darkest situations. It may not promise that life will always be easy, but it does invite you to know with confidence that darkness will not have the last word. It will not have the last word in our world, and it will not have the last word in your life. God comes in the midst of our dirt and our mess, and he invites us to hope. So this is my invitation for you this Christmas. You've been invited to live a life of hope. This is an invitation that's not just for me. It's not just for those who are standing at the front this evening. This is an invitation for each one of us. So in a moment, I'm going to pray a really simple prayer that asks God to be our source of hope this Christmas. And can I invite you to make it your own prayer? Uh, if you would like to make it your own prayer, simply say amen at the end as I pray. It doesn't matter if you've prayed thousands and thousands of times before or if you've never prayed in your life. The invitation is for you. So shall we pray? Jesus, you are the hope of the world. You are light in the darkest of places. Even in the midst of suffering and death, you are hope for a bright future. God, we are sorry for the ways that we have turned away from you. We thank you that you forgive us when we come back to you. Jesus, this evening we choose to respond to your invitation of hope. To follow you. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.